Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name and welcome you to this service this morning. Especially welcome Logan and Ryland back from the sunny south. Um, you won't get sunburned up here for a few days yet, so so welcome. Also, uh, one other announcement that I uh, should just make. So I had mentioned last Sunday that we're going to try to get into the nursing homes. We actually had an invitation to be at Blooming next Sunday evening, and we plan to do that, Lord willing. I have not heard back from Hayfield yet, so I'm not sure how that's going to work out there. They haven't gotten back to me. So um, hopefully we have an answer by next Sunday morning uh, as to where we might uh, use as the other place. I think there's kind of a of a standing invitation at Brownsdale, so if it doesn't work out at, at, at Hayfield, perhaps we'll do that. So just letting you know where that's at. All right, so as far as a, um, as a message this morning, I'm going to continue the, the one that I started, actually it's about six weeks ago now, since I preached here. Um, if you remember, it, the, the title of the message was Identifying and Avoiding Modern-Day Deception. And we spent the last time looking at scriptures, specifically four, that described false prophets and some of their tactics and deceptive ways. This morning I would like to um, uh, continue this, um, this theme of deception and uh, how we can identify it and spot it and keep from being deceived. And I'd like to start the message out this morning by... Um, looking at other sources of deception. As I mentioned last uh, time, we spent basically the entire message on what the, what the scriptures teach about false prophets, how they look, their tactics, how they work. And I would call that um, deception from without. Um, uh, one of the common uh, go-to verses as, as far as false prophets go is in Matthew 24:11, and we, we, we read that last time. It talks about how there's many false prophets that will arise and deceive many. And that's Jesus speaking. He said, this is what you can expect after I go away toward the end of the age. John says the same thing in 1 John 4 when he says that we should try the spirits, whether they are of God, because he says many false prophets are going out into the world. And in that particular scripture, um, the, the context would lead us to believe that John felt in his day there was even many false prophets that were in the world. So, in, in generality, um, we can conclude that as far as the deception from without, we should generally have a fairly healthy skepticism, I would say, of teachings that we encounter from sources without. Okay, the false prophets without. And I think John says we should try the spirits. And I, and I think I have about, oh, I don't know, what is it, seven tests here. I think that we can easily, that easily helps us to identify when a prophet is a false prophet. Okay? So test number one, does the teacher teach that Jesus is the only way to God? All right? That's a simple test. That eliminates large swaths of religion in the world. Is that what this man teaches? Is this what the, the religion teaches? Does the teacher teach that you must be born again? Jesus said we have to be born again. Is that is that a premise from which the teacher teaches? Does the teacher teach simple obedience to the scripture 
or do they major on experience? And and I think this is a um, this is a big one. People love experience. They love the uh, dramatic. Okay, they like that. They enjoy that. Uh, simple obedience is hard work. That, that's something we can do every day. That's the taking up the cross thing every day. That's this is that's work. Um, a dramatic experience is just a high old time. We we come and we have this dramatic experience, but then it's over. See, which is being emphasized? Number four, does does the teacher express and promote the fruits of righteousness? And I was interested that that came out in our Sunday school text this morning. Um, uh, Paul Paul told the Philippian church that this model that he was presenting would produce fruits of righteousness. Recently, uh, just by um, happenstance, I, I happened across an article about the nephew of Benny Hinn. Anybody, anybody ever hear of Benny Hinn? You know who, I talk, who I'm talking about? He's, he's, a, he's a very charismatic uh, speaker, teacher, uh, majors on the dramatic. He believes in, um, in uh, spirit gifts uh, manifesting itself in ways that I would say is questionable. But Benny, Benny Hinn is not a, a poor person. Uh, he also believes in health and wealth, and he really believes in wealth for himself. Okay, and so uh, he uh, he majors on um, on big meetings, and um, and he expects his audience to support his 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 um, campaigns, whatever you want to call it. Well, this nephew of of Benny Hinn, and I failed to get his name. At some point, he began to question. The the um, the avenue of his uncle and father, and eventually he left that that movement because, in his words, and, I, and I'm not saying this verbatim, but the way the article read was, he finally realized that this was not scriptural. It was not it the the model that was being um, used that the that the Hin family was literally living large off the pockets of their audience was not a biblical model. And he walked away from it. And today he promotes quite the opposite. It's one of dispersing, giving away. Um, one of uh, a life of, um, of, um, of uh, generosity rather than um, lavish living. I was interested in that because... I'll be honest with you. I believe such teachers are false teachers. That's what I believe. I don't believe they're promoting the fruits of righteousness, and I was interested that this man's nephew saw that as well. Does the teacher teach a cross-bearing Christianity, denying oneself and taking up his cross? Does the teacher teach scriptural brotherhood? Is there brotherhood accountability and church discipline um, exercised by the teacher and his followers. And lastly, are the masses attracted and entertained by the prophet and his people? You know, it has been my observation that where cross, the cross-bearing gospel is preached, that cuts totally counter to the carnal will and selfish desires. That does not attract a following. And that is why Jesus said, that narrow is the way that leads to life. Because you you will not naturally get on the narrow way. That will not happen by mistake. If you're on the narrow way, that will be intentional. Uh, the broad way 
it's open. It's open to all, and many people will find themselves on that uh, because it costs nothing, absolutely nothing. All right, so now let's look at another source of deception, and that is from within. I had never, I had never thought of this until I began to study this message. How many times the scripture talks about us being deceived from within? And I'm going to quote to you some scriptures here. I have a number of scriptures to read, and I'm not sure if we'll take time to turn to them, but you can jot them down if you're taking notes. The first one I see in Acts 20, where Paul is talking to the to the church there at Ephesus, and it's the last time he's interacting with them, and, and he's telling them what's going to happen in the future to their church. And he says, For this I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So he said, there's going to be people coming in from the outside. They're going to deceive you, and they're going to be hard on the flock. But he says, also, and this is verse 30 now of chapter 20, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So he said, not only are you going to have pressure from the outside, you're going to have pressure coming right up from the inside, men among your own selves rising up and drawing away disciples. In Romans, there's another um, remark here by Paul in the last chapter of Romans, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. All right, so if you look at that larger context, you would, you would, you would, um, you would draw that Paul is again talking about people that we know, people that are among us that are causing division and offenses in the brotherhood. They're serving themselves. And they know how to talk well. And they beguile the simple. That's what it says. Peter has something similar to say in 2 Peter 2.1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And through covetousness, they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. And heart they have exercised with covetous practice, cursed children. All right. Now let's go to Jude. This is um, very similar wording here in Jude um, chapter 1 and verse 4. For there are certain men crept on in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. Now if you take these four different um, sections of scripture that I've read, and you put them together and you begin to tear them apart and see what's common in each one of these readings that I just read, here are some common threads that begin to stand out. These people that are from among us, okay, um, we know them, all right? And because we know them and we interact with them, we are more easily beguiled by them, okay? Um, In other words, it's easy not to trust a stranger because we don't know the people, so we don't have any trust. We don't have a relationship, so we tend not to trust. But when there are people in our own benches that perhaps we have known for years, and they begin to get swayed by some false doctrine, and they begin to pull you with it, or begin to speak to you about it, you have a relationship with this person. And suddenly you are more vulnerable than you were if you if some stranger came to your house and um, told you the same thing. It's because of that relationship. And we are we are we succumb to this sometimes and become confused and disillusioned because of that relationship that we have. I also notice in these in these verses that we read that there's a common thread that there is an attitude of anti-authority that seems to come out in each one of these um, each one of these readings. It says they despise dominion and they speak evil of dignities. And yet at the same time it also comes out that they always know best. They always get it right. And at the same time they're getting it right, they are backstabbing and speaking ill of legitimate authority. In my reading this uh, this particular week, I, I was reading through the book of Second Samuel, and uh, I, I couldn't help but think of this whenever I was reading through that saga of Absalom um, uh, and his uh, his attempt to usurp the kingdom, and and how he he used his his fair words, his good looks. And his way with people to, to sway the hearts of the people. And suddenly, he nearly had the kingdom on, in, in his hand because of his, uh, of his way of standing at the gate saying, if I were king, I would listen to you. But since David's king, he's not. You know, so you had that backstabbing of authority and at the same time saying, but I do know what's right. The other thing that stands out here is that these people are especially successful with the simple and the unstable. They prey on the vulnerable and gain a following from people that are easily influenced. Okay, That is why it is so, so, so important that we stick close by the word and do not allow ourselves to be swayed and sucked in to influences um, because of our simpleness or our instability. Lastly, these people are described as sensual and serving their own belly. More interested in the carnal than the spiritual. And their ways and demeanor are also carnal many times. Or I should say probably always. So those are some, those are some things that I see about influences from within. It's, it's sad that, um, that it happens, but I, but it does happen. It has happened. And I suppose as, as long as the world stands, it will continue to happen. And we need to be on guard for that. 
Lastly, there's another force that um, that we can that can deceive us, and that's myself. There's three three um, passages in the New Testament that talk about me deceiving myself. Okay, I'm going to read them to you. In G- Galatians six three, it reads like this. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now, in the context there, it's talking about restoring a brother that has erred, and it says that when you're doing this, consider yourself how you could also be tempted. And um, I think in that in that context, using that context as as the um, as the explanation for this verse. When I have an over-high estimation of myself, and I do not see myself as vulnerable to erring or deception or whatever the case may be, I fool myself, right? And I have this over-high estimation of myself. Um, God says, you know what? Um, remember, you're nothing. Um, you're thinking yourself to be something when you're really nothing. And I would like to just stop here for just a second and talk about this just a little bit. In, in our modern day, and I don't know when this started, I, I didn't study into this much, but there's one thing that I find bothersome. And I don't think it's scriptural, and I think we should, we should be careful how we think about this. But I hear more than I'd like about a, a mantra about having proper self-esteem for oneself. Now, I suppose that it is possible for me to reach a point where I have such a a, a poor uh, thought process about myself that it's unhealthy. I suppose that is possible. I don't want to discount that completely. However, I would be interested if you could point me to a verse that would warn me about that. The verses I read in my Bible warn me about thinking too highly of myself. That's the warning. Uh, let a man be careful that he doesn't think too highly of himself. And I don't find a lot of instruction about make sure you have proper self-esteem for yourself. All right. Usually we don't have that problem. So let's be careful about that um, about that modern way of thinking. The second uh, passage I would point out to you is in James one, a very simple, uh, familiar verse one twenty two. Be, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So here James is saying that it is possible for me to come to church here this morning, or many mornings, or go to other places where good instruction is imparted, or I could read the Bible myself, and I can do all this good stuff, But if it doesn't do anything for me when I walk out these doors, if I don't put that to practice, I have just deceived myself. I have, I believe I'm doing a good thing by being here this morning and going through the motions of listening to good things being taught perhaps, but I'm not willing to do it. I deceive myself. It it can also be more subtle than that. What about when I make excuses for myself? Um, I, I had an experience recently that that brought this to mind. Uh, a person was telling me about how he had a he had a, a, a tenant in his house, and this tenant was um, it was time for him to go. He was he was not paying his rent, and uh, there were some other issues, and it was just high time for this tenant to go. But the tenant didn't wish to move. 
So we have a problem now. We, we have a, I own the house, but the tenant does not wish to move. But I want him to move. How am I going to get him to move? How's that going to happen? Well, there's, there's ways we can do that. There is, there's legal action we can take to remove the tenant. Okay? But what does the Bible say about legal action in the Christian? How's that mix? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? The Bible does have something to say about that, doesn't it? And it says more about, you know what? Maybe we should just take joyfully the spoiling of our goods. Now, I tell you, folks, there are some very difficult conundrums we get ourselves into. I'm not sure what you do when you have a tenant in a house that will not pay his rent and he's destroying your property, and you want him to move, but you can't get him to move. I, I, I question... If I could look at you square in the face and tell you that it's okay for you to take the law into your hands to get the man to move, I would have a very difficult time coming up with scripture for that. But my point is, if I read that in scripture, but I don't do it, do I become a hearer of the word rather than a doer? And I gave that as an illustration. I want you to apply it to your life. How can I... Read God's word, and it says one thing, and yet I practice quite another. When we become hearers and not doers, we enter into a place where we begin to deceive ourselves, begin to proof text things, we begin to make excuses for our situation. This situation is is not normal. I wouldn't normally do this, but I'm going to do it because this is unique. And so we have this whole circumstantial um, excuses that we make for things. Think about that. The third scripture I would point you to is in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As I read through those verses a number of times, I have concluded that what this is saying to me is that if I say I can participate in things that belong in the camp of unrighteousness, okay, and at the same time I say that's not sin, I have just deceived myself. Or if I declare something is not sin when it is. Or if I declare myself free from sin when I am not. See, that's that's deception. And I don't know about you, but I know I, it's pretty easy for me to make excuses for myself. Because nobody quite understands the, the, the situation I was in or what caused me to do this or that, this or that or the next thing. And it is very, very easy for me to deceive myself and say, I can do this thing and it's okay. John says, if we do this, we don't have fellowship and we walk in darkness and we deceive ourselves. All right, let's leave that now and let's look at what the Bible enumerates to us that are common deceptions that can very easily trip us up. The first one comes in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt Good manners. 
Another rendering puts it like this. Do not be tricked by false words. Evil company does damage to good behavior. So this is very simple to understand. When I believe that I can associate closely with the ungodly or other deceived people, and it won't affect me, I'm, I'm deceiving myself. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming deceived. When I voluntarily and regularly associate closely with ungodliness, it always has a net negative effect. It's back to the old illustration of uh, we have a basket of apples, and we have one rotten apple, just one. Which way is it going to work? Is the good apples going to make the bad one good? Or is that one bad apple going to make the good ones bad? We all know the answer to that, don't we? The Bible also says, Paul tells the Corinthian church, that a little leaven, just a little bit, leavens the whole lump. Don't be deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. This is one of the, um, one of the unfortunate things of our modern education system. There's been many a Christian person that has lost his way when he has entered into the, uh, entered into higher education because of the ungodliness, the evil that he said, that he put himself in front of as he listened to corrupt teaching intermingled daily with corrupt people and, and succumb to the corruptness of the environment around him. All right, number two. This is in Galatians 6, 7. It's very closely related to the one we just read, but it's a little different. It goes like this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. This is a very, 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 very easy scripture to understand, isn't it? Whatever you put out there in the field, that's what you're going to reap. If I put out oats, I will not get soybeans. Just won't happen that way. If I follow a selfish, humanistic way of unregenerate men, I will not reap good fruit. That won't happen. But the opposite is also true. If you sow to the spirit, you reap of the spirit. Those things, um, those things always work the same way. We 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 won't sow to the spirit and reap corruption, and we won't sow corruption and reap of the spirit. But he also says in verse 9, he goes, now, now don't be weary in well-doing. To sow to the Spirit is hard work. I'm, Paul's not denying that. But he said, eventually you will reap if you don't faint. Essentially what he's saying there is it's a lot easier to sow to the flesh. That's a lot easier and the harvest comes generally much sooner. But if you will sow to the Spirit... Eventually, if you don't reap, you will, if you don't faint, you will reap. We cannot avoid the predetermined consequences of fleshly living. And neither will God um, not fail to reward us if we sow to the Spirit. Those two things are, are uh, set in stone, if you will.
Another common deception that the Bible speaks to is in 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness... Now think about that. He that doeth righteousness. It doesn't say he that thinketh righteousness, or he that talketh righteousness, or he that believeth righteousness. It's he that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So what John is saying here is that we could be tricked or deceived into thinking that it's not doing righteousness that is righteous. You know, the practice of righteous living is right. Okay? That's, you, you agree with that? Righteousness is right. That's what, that's what John is saying here. And it is a marker of godliness. He says the counterpoint is also true. If, if I live sinfully, I serve the devil. And to live sinfully and to claim to be a Christian, I'm afraid defines too many people's Christianity today. I can do what I want. I'll do what pleases me. And at the same time, I'm a Christian. John says, no, that's not right. It's the person that does righteousness that's righteous. That this has deceived its millions. And the mantra is, the teaching is, that God's grace covers it all. And I can practice what I will, and it will be just fine. You know, I, I, as I pondered this a little bit, <clears throat> I also think there's another side to this that we can think about. What about when we observe practices of righteousness being practiced, all right? So we have righteousness when we see it in shoe leather, all right? Things that are virtuous being played out. But, at the, but this righteousness that we see practiced to some degree is not coming from a heart that is righteous, okay? Now, now that, that, to some degree that can happen. There are things that you can, um, you can do that are right and good, but the heart hasn't changed, we know this can happen. Now, when that is observed long enough, and the hypocrisy of the thing is is observed, it can sometimes turn people cynical. And when you're cynical, you believe that everything is a lie, okay? And so you begin to 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 have this feeling that if I see righteousness being practiced, that person is suspect. There's something wrong with his heart, see? But John says that it's when people practice righteousness, that's when it's righteous. So I guess my encouragement is this. When we see, when we see, um, hypocrisy on blatant display, do not knock the practice just because of the person. Don't do that. The practice is still right. All right. We really like it when the heart is where the practice is. But do not let an unregenerate heart that is, that is trying to practice righteousness turn you off on the practice of righteousness. I hope that makes sense. Paul in Ephesians 5, and I'm not going to, uh, well, maybe I will. Maybe I'll just read that real quick. I, it's maybe 
Maybe I shouldn't pass over this one. Ephesians 5, verse 3, goes like this. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. I don't have to explain that. Paul lays it out in clear and simple language. These things that he mentions do not have part in the kingdom of righteousness. Number four comes from Titus 3.3. 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived. Okay, so this is what Titus says. We all were at some point foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Now he describes what people that are foolish, disobedient, and deceived do. And this is what he says. Serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Now what I want to pull out of this verse is that when we believe that the lusts and pleasures of this world bring happiness, we are deceived. That's what Titus is saying here. Or Paul is telling Titus, I should say. When I claim that I am a disciple, and yet I serve the God of lust and pleasure, I'm a deceived person. And it's so easily to, easy to be ensnared in this one. The world has many alluring things to snare us with its deception that selfish entertainment is what we need for a fulfilled life. That You don't have to go very far to get that idea. And we are so, so snared sometimes by this one. But when I serve these gods... It leaves me empty and running back for more. And God cannot share space in my heart with the God of this world. All right. So what are some simple biblical instructions for us to avoid deception? Rule number one, walk in the light. That's what John says over and over in 1 John. Walk in the light. Deception is the part of the kingdom of darkness, and as long as we walk in the light, we will not be deceived. Do I want light? Is that what I'm interested in? Am I staying in the word of God? Am I praying for clarity? You know, I believe God really respects an honest heart. If I'm not doing something that, if, or if, I'm, if I'm engaging in something that is displeasing to God, and yet my heart is that I want to please God, God knows that heart. And he will lead you out of that deception if you are, if you are deceived. And so I think that's, that's one that we need to, to grab a hold of. God does not want you to be deceived and he will not let you be deceived if you don't want to be deceived. Okay? So, stay in the word. Pray to him about that. And God will be faithful. I believe, um, a lack of teaching and Bible knowledge and prolonged exposure to hypocrisy gives an unfair advantage to deceiving spirits. And I believe that's why, can I say it one more time? That's why it's so important to read our Bibles every day. That's why it's so important for you and I to be here this morning. 
listening to instruction, and uh, and worshiping God together. In Ephesians 4.14, it says that it's, it's talking about the different gifts that God gives the saints and how these work together. And he gives the reason in verse 14, he says, So that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. I'll say this. There's been plenty of people that I've run into in my time that have been turned off by, by, by some, for some reason on organized Christianity. And we'll leave that there. But I can tell you one thing. Generally, they are fairly confused people. They have, they have come up with their own program that they believe, and it usually is off-kilter in one way or the other. All right. So what's another way we can, um, we can avoid deception? I believe this one applies uh, very, very much to our current times. I think we need to be extremely discerning of teachers, bloggers, and information that we derive off of the thing we know as the Internet. I truly believe, as I read the, the Bible description of the end times and how deception will be ramped up exponentially, to, to me, it, it's, it's a, the, our, our Internet and the, and the World Wide Web is the reason this can happen. You know, it used to be that if somebody wanted a following, I mean, they had to be really popular, or they had to some way find their way onto radio or television or something. I mean, there just wasn't very many ways to become popular. But today, if I want to be popular, I guess I can get on Facebook and be popular. I mean, the, the, the you know, or, or start a YouTube channel, and I'm amazed at um, at the um, at the following some very mundane people have just because they have access to. Social media. And here's the problem with social media. This person could live in the Netherlands or wherever. I have absolutely no way to observe this person's life. Absolutely no way. All I can go by is what I hear. And did you know it's pretty easy to sound good? It doesn't take much to blow hot air. It doesn't. And I mean, people can sound really, really good. But the Bible's clear. That it's not what you hear, it is what you observe is what you need to go by. Number three, closely on the heels, let's be slow to embrace popular movements, trends, and bandwagons. I would say most popular movements tend to revolve around either particular men or the particular excitement that they bring. And there's many examples of churches that spring up and attract many because of this. And I would even, I would even say that it even happens in our conservative Mennonite churches. Have you ever noticed that when a new church starts somewhere, it's the answer to everybody's problems, at least it's perceived that way. And it's interesting to me that it too many times attracts people that don't build good church. And it isn't too many years down the road when, when we when we begin to have problems because who did it attract? Well, it was popular. It was a place to go. And so people ran to it. I was given this advice one time, and I'll never forget it, and I believe it's true. This brother told me, he said, when everybody else is running, just walk. 
When everybody else is running, just walk. If it attracts the masses, we probably should be careful. Lastly, on this point, we should be careful to observe the life and fruit of the people that are closest to us and measure that against God's word. Now, I, I, I'm going to pull two scriptures here, and, I, and I, I'd be interested to know if you, if you feel the same way. But these two passages that I'm going to read to you lead me to believe that we should put pretty much stock in the teaching of people that love us the most. All right? So listen to this. This is Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He's advising him here. He says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right? So we have this deception thing here. He said, but here's what I want you to do, Timothy. He said, I want you to continue in the things thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. Now, who was he referring to here? Well, he had referred to uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother earlier. And I believe in a veiled way he's referring to himself because Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship. And he said, Timothy, you know your mother and your grandmother and I. You mean a lot to us and we mean a lot to you. Think carefully about what we've taught you. And he goes on to verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, he goes on to say, what we have taught you, Timothy, lines up with the Holy Scriptures, which you have been taught since a child. And these things will make you wise if you will continue in them. All right, so the second, the second uh, passage I'm going to point out is in Hebrews 13. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. I'm going to re- read this to you in the common English version. It might help, help us to understand it just a little bit better. So it goes like this. Remember your leaders who spoke God's word to you. Imitate their faith as you consider the way their lives turned out. So what he's saying is here is that as you have listened to leaders and teachers teach you, to the degree that their teaching has has been biblical and their faith has, has followed that teaching, live that way. Follow, follow the fruits that you have seen. And then he inserts this in verse 8. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he goes on to say, don't be misled by the many strange teachings out there. It's a good thing for the heart to be strengthened by grace rather than food. Food doesn't help those who live in this context. Now, have you ever wondered why that little verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is stuck in between those two verses that it seems disjointed, doesn't it? Well, here's what I'm going to, here's the conclusion I came to. The, 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 the fruits of righteousness, the practice of righteousness, good church has always been the same. It doesn't matter if you were back there in Apostles' Day or if you're today. If you if you can draw a line through the faithful church, it has looked a lot the same. Now, there's been some things that have been different, but the paradigm has stayed the same. Paul's saying, be, be careful. The way your grandpa d- did it probably wasn't all that bad. So be careful about being thinking that you know better than the former generation. 
Jesus Christ is the same. So if you if you noticed your your ancestors doing something and it worked out well for them, it'll probably work out well for you too. And then he says, don't be misled by strange teachings. He said, feed the heart with grace. Okay? How do we do that? Well, can I go back to what I've been saying? How do you feed your heart with grace? Isn't it the word of God? If we'll nourish our hearts with that, we will certainly be able to stay on the straight and narrow and not be following the many voices. All right, I'm going to wrap this up. I have one concluding burden, I guess you'd say it. How am I as a person? And and again, to go back to the beginning, the very beginning of this message six weeks ago, I said I'm starting with the premise, I'm, I'm teaching this on the premise that I believe I'm speaking to people that are not deceived and do not wish to be deceived. And the Bible speaks from that premise too. It, it, it implies that there is always a remnant of people that are not deceived. And that's the premise I'm working from. But as a, as a person that does not wish to be deceived, how do I re- relate to people that have succumbed to deception? I'm going to read you a verse out of 2 Timothy 2.19. It says like this, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure having the seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now I read that verse to say this. I believe it's entirely possible for somebody that... Grew up with teaching that has imbibed some false doctrine, but he is equally as concerned as I about not being deceived. But but he has he has grown up with this, and he he has been taught that this is the way and whatever. And his heart also doesn't wish to be deceived. However, maybe he is. All right. I don't say I don't think it's necessarily. The other thing I want to add to this is perhaps as you observe this person's life, you can see tenets of doctrine that are wrong, but you see a life that sure looks like a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is exuding itself. What am I supposed to do with that? Here's what I'm going to suggest. It is not my calling to necessarily judge that, okay? To the degree that I can encourage, I will. But it says here that the Lord knows those that are his. God will get it right. It's not our, it's not our problem to try to figure that out. However, Paul tells Timothy, he said, everyone that nameth the name of Christ will do this one thing. He said they will depart from iniquity. He said, you can take that to the bank. If a person despises iniquity and he is departing from that, in all likelihood, he is a child of God. Isn't that what it's saying here? That's what it sure sounds like to me. A person that names the name of Christ departs from iniquity. All right. So I believe that a deceived person deserves our respect and simple human gestures of grace and kindness like every other human being. After all, the Bible says that we should love our enemies. So... Shouldn't we love anybody that's deceived as well? That seems pretty easy. I'm not, I'm not part of the, the crowd that believes that when a Jehovah's Witness comes to the door that I should slam the door in his face. That's not the, the crowd I'm a part of. I believe I should speak graciously to that person. 
But there's one thing that I do have some, it, it bothers me, I'll put it that way. And I'm going, to, I'm going to give it to you for your consideration. We're back now to the, to the internet and social media. There was a time when people that were in our midst and they left us, just that action by itself uh, put, a, put a barrier. We didn't see them day by day. We didn't see them weekly. And as time moved on, the paths grew apart. It, it, was just the, it was just the way it worked out. In today's world, with social media, it doesn't work that way. We can have almost as close a contact with those people that have left and followed deceptive voices, perhaps, as we did when they walked with us. So now, what, how are we supposed to interact with that? And that's the conundrum I would like to just express to you a little bit. I, I, I believe that we should be very, very careful. Well, before I say this, look, turn with me to Second uh, John. Second John has something here to say that I think we should just we should just read it the way he puts it. Second John verse seven: For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not the things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Pretty easy to understand in verse 9. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, the doctrine he outlined in, in verse 9, it says, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deed. Now we could read that, Don't have him into your house and don't encourage him. That's basically what it means, don't bid him Godspeed. Don't encourage him. So friends, think about, think about this with me. When we see things on social, in our social media feeds, and it is an expression of ungodliness, or it is a teaching of ungodliness, it can't be anything else other than that, and we see this. Somebody posts something, and it obviously is something that we cannot approve of. Is it right for us to click the thumbs up? I say absolutely not, and yet I see it happening. What we're doing when we do that is we are bidding Godspeed to something that should not have Godspeed. Now, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that I think most times when that happens, it it happens on an instant without thought, and it is done in the spirit of I want to let this person know that I saw this. I think that's why it's done. But I want you to think the next time that happens to you, do I or don't I want to be a partaker of that evil deed? I don't think any of us want to, right? I don't think so. Let's be very, very, very careful of that. So, folks, I will leave that, leave you with that. As I said earlier, I think none of us wish to be in the camp of the deceived. I know that that's the case with the folks I talked to here this morning. And we don't have to be. God is faithful, and we don't have to be in that camp. And, and uh, may we be encouraged to uh, to stay out of uh, stay out of darkness and in the light.